what's been on my heart more and more. It's this thrust toward really looking at the purity and relative simplicity of God's Word. However, there is a version of Christianity now that's making God's Word way too simple. And in this unity at all costs, that it's all about unity and nothing else, it's coming, folks. You see it. As long as we just agree. But <laughs> Jesus, did he come to bring unification in his time? Did he say that they're going to drag you in front of the Sanhedrin? They're going to drag us before even our own brothers and sisters who are going to call us heretics because we stand on the word of God where others who we see, and, and I've made it clear, and you need to be looking at this yourself, and I'm not going to get off on that tangent again, but the lies, the deception coming from very large Christian church leaders and publishers today, I told you about one book that's recommended by somebody who's huge, this woman, supposedly a teacher of God's word, and yet she references an author of a book who talks about these things which are known in the occult as fairy circles. And they act as if it's fact. It's Jewish folklore about a guy named Hani dancing in a circle, telling God I want it to rain, and God makes it drizzle. He goes, that's not enough. I want it to pour. And supposedly God does this. This is in a book that's called The Prayer Circle, who's referenced by someone who is a very large publisher of Christian Bible studies and so forth. These things can really hurt the heart of someone who wants to trust the people that we're told to trust. It's a burden on my heart, and I want it to be a burden on your heart. The dilution of the Word of God, the dilution of replacing God's name with the divine, or the being, or the Christ Spirit, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, if you do not watch out for yourselves and be ready to give an answer to others around you, you will be part of the problem, and I don't want you to be part of the problem. Have eyes to see. Warning. Danger. The falling away. Okay. Well, we are going to have our history lesson today. And you're going to like this, I think. Because it's going to show you what the point of this is. Prophecy is being fulfilled on many different levels. See, prophecy, again, as I've talked about in, in the uh, path to this point, prophecy serves many different purposes. But those who do not understand prophecy, and really, most Christians today, I'm sorry to say, really don't have a use for prophecy. Matter of fact, the leader of one of the largest churches in this nation has said in a book he published that Jesus said it's none of our business. That's what he said in his book. It's none of our business. Really? The foundation of Scripture is prophecy. It proves many things about not only who God is, his mind, his heart, his character, his point of view, and it's not just a study about the end times. I'm going to show you how God's mastery of time rolls out in these waves. You ever drop a pebble into the, into the stream or the, a still body of water, let's say. And the reverberations of that pebble go out, go out, go out, and eventually they fade. But my point is every ring, every concentric ring that comes out from the instant of instigation of that action, okay, is identical, except that it gets larger and more pronounced. In Scripture, and we're going to see this in just this one example today. Prophecy is the same thing. God drops a pebble in the pond of time. And that pebble has reverberations, and there are four types, and then the next type of the same thing, and the next type. And there are so many of them, and I'll give you one example, which is not here, but I'll just give it to you, because it's one that most Christians do know, because it's so blatantly obvious. And again, it's blatantly obvious, but there's so many details which you can't even get into, you probably don't even realize, is the story of Joseph. 
how much of a type of Christ is Joseph? From his dreams to the coat of many colors to being favored by his father to being rejected by his brothers to going to Egypt. And finally they come to Egypt and he reveals himself for who he is to save them. Do you see how this is exactly how the lifespan of Israel is being laid out right before our eyes? When I read to you in Hosea where it says, God will like a lion tear Israel apart and then two days and then he will go away. I read you that. And on the third day, he will come again. And he will heal us. That's the history of, of all of Israel wrapped up inside of a few verses right there. Because we know that a day with the Lord is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. We already talked about that, correct? So here's this concept. If you look at the life of Joseph, you see this whole thing laid out to you for you in his life. He's sold by his brothers, rejected, sent to die. But what they intended for evil, God meant for isn't that the story of Christ? And the story of the brothers having to come back and he hid, Joseph hid himself from his brothers but made provision for Jacob, the progenitor of him. You see, I'm just trying, see, I'm going off on this tangent again. But you see the ripple effects in time where it starts in this small ripple which is the story of Joseph. And then the next ripple is another story down the line which is similar to the life of Joseph and it gets bigger and bigger and finally it ends up at the fulfillment of it all which is Jesus Christ that's how you prove scripture is true that's the only way that you and I and anybody can prove scripture is true is you have to access prophecy you have to and there are so many Christians who take a little snippet here a little snippet there and we just love the Lord and love the Lord and all is unity let me tell you something we're gonna die in unity going off the deep end if we don't keep our nose in this book and we don't learn and be ready to teach it and again, I'm not talking about new Christians. I'm so glad if a new Christian is learning because of the love for this new thing called the way to them, right? But I'm talking about people like me who have been Christians for many years where Paul tells us, and sort of like me in a very straightforward way, you should be ready to teach. Yet you, you're sitting on the foundation of Christ. That's what he said. I read it again this morning. He actually says that. You're actually just sitting on the foundation of Christ and Him crucified. That's wrong for a Christian. Now, for people who hear that, who don't listen to what he or I am actually trying to say, well, how can you say the foundation of Christ is wrong for a Christian? I'm not saying that. But if you and I don't build on that foundation, what do you think the Lord is going to say to us? Well done, good and faithful servant. Well, I didn't want to offend anybody, so I didn't talk about this. Well, I didn't want to offend anybody, so I didn't talk about that. Well, I saw these things wrong in a Bible study that I found that some people are using anywhere. And I didn't say anything because they would get angry if I said something. You see how if we hide from our responsibility to learn and then to use that knowledge, are we going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant? Well, we'll still be saved. So think about your place and what the Holy Spirit wants you personally to do, which is not the same thing He wants me to do. But we all have the same job, folks. We are holy. We are called to be separate. We are not to be unified with this world or the religions of this world. Kumbaya with all the other religions is where Satan and the Babylonian system is headed. We're going to talk about this morning. Do you want to be part of that? Do you want to help unify the world's religions with Christianity? Do you want to? It sounds great. Thank you. That's right. I vote for you. You're my man. But this is where it's headed. And again, the leader of the largest church in America, 
either he's having it soon or he's already had it. And I'm not quite sure of the time frame. They're meeting in California with a bunch of Muslim clerics to see further how they can look at and resolve the differences between Christianity and Islam. Even more. And you know that the Wycliffe Corporation or the Wycliffe Bible Publishers, they're coming out with a Bible. And again, I don't know the time frame of this. I challenge you to look it up yourselves. Don't just believe me. They're going to publish for the purpose of helping Islam merge with Christianity. Did you heard about that, right? Okay. This is a major, trusted, all these years, a Bible. See, I'm off on a tangent here now. But they're taking, they're taking the word that really talks about God out so that you can say it's Allah or not. Well, of course they want that. This is what they want. They want, look, the whole point of the Muslim religion is something that most of them know is not the pursuit of God. Just like we see, we'll see with Nimrod here in a moment. Okay? Make no mistake about it. There are a lot of Muslims at the low level who think that Allah is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Let's say there are a lot of Christians who believe that. So you take somebody who takes this low level of ignorance, just blatant ignorance, blatant ignorance and say you're right I'm a leader of the largest church I've spoken at presidential inaugurations I've prayed and used the word Isa in my prayer did you know that and I can I've talked to a Christian okay so I'm off on a tangent <laughs> I talked to a Christian and I brought that up I brought that up I said this man who I cannot name but you know pretty much who I'm talking about I said this man Use the word Isa, which is the name of Jesus in Islam, or in, you know, in Muslim communities in, in Islam, in Arabic, in the presidential inauguration, in his prayer at the first inauguration of uh, President Obama. And you know what he said? Oh, well, he, this person, this one who did this prayer, oh, he later, because he got under fire for it, right? Not much, but he did. Oh, it was just because we want to help the Muslim community. We want to ingratiate ourselves to the Muslim community so we use their name for Jesus. Let me tell you something about the Muslim community and what they think of Jesus. Jesus has to be anathema to them by the Quran. The Quran says, anybody ever look at the Quran? It's a fraud. That's right. Right. But it goes deeper than that. Here's what I'm saying. In their Quran, you know what it says? Their Bible, which they believe supposedly is the truth. It says in one of the surahs, Anybody that but says, first of all, Allah has no equal. He has no son. He says the Christians have their Christ and the Jews have their prophets. But the Christians have their Christ. And it basically says that anybody who equates anyone as a son of Allah is worthy of the lowest rank of hell. So how can you have Muslims who do say, well, we think Jesus is a great prophet. They cannot say that. By their own book, they can't say that because Jesus himself said, I am the son of God. I am God. Anybody who equates themselves with God, because Allah has no equal, right? What does it say about Jesus in our Bible? He did not think it robbery. So you've got to be careful out there, folks. Everybody, and I'm, I point here, I mean around this world and especially in this sick nation. Christianity is becoming everything but what it is. Nothing you can do about it except do what we're supposed to be doing here and hold the line. And you know what? You may be persecuted for it. Our deepest and hardest persecutors may come from our own brothers and sisters. Or at least what's worse is those who pretend to be brothers and sisters. 
My heart is broken because I've seen some major people that I used to follow who I thought were good, solid teachers of the Bible, and they're endorsing these people who tell these fairy tales. My heart is broken. So let's get off this topic. I need some more coffee. <laughs> Thank you. Don't get me started. Yeah, better be decaf. All right. So last week we did start talking about a character named Nimrod. What a name, Nimrod. Like, what is it? Anyway, so we got to move on here. So listen, so he was a mighty, uh, we read from Genesis. Matter of fact, I'll read it to you again very quickly. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but it's Genesis chapter 11 and verse, uh, uh, well, I'll just start in verse 5. But the Lord came down to see the city that they were building. Remember, it said that he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. That's what it says, before the Lord. That sounds good, right? I told you. That's the translation. But in, in reality, what it really says is he was a mighty hunter in defiance or in the face. Before the Lord is a nice way of sounding, which could be misinterpreted as before or in the face of. You see the difference between the two? Okay. So he was a mighty hunter in defiance, stark defiance of the Lord. Okay. One of the major things he did, and we're going to see how this is the beginning of the Babylonian mystery religion. This is where we're going, folks, and this is prophecy. How this whole system, which, by the way, you and I are part of. We take our commerce in this system. We are now, like I just said, our own, our own true, true, I'll call it religion, right? The way we worship God, the Christ we know, the Bible we set our hearts on and our minds on, right? Is being merged into this system. And now the falling away, like I just told you, and like you see, is being merged more and more into this system because Satan wants to destroy the truth. So he started this with Nimrod. So Nimrod's the mighty hunter, yay, before the Lord. You know that history shows. Again, I've done a lot of research on this, and this is not just recent. I've been doing this for a long time now, folks. I have a lot of research. History holds that he devised a way of very being a very efficient hunter. Now, in those days, he didn't have guns and rifles and AK-47s, because he himself would probably ban them in his liberal government there. Nobody's laughing yet. The President Obama of his day, but I'm not going to get political on you. Okay, but what he did, history holds this. History does hold this. I know I'm in trouble a lot, folks. I get used to it. You could throw the eggs. Why don't you just save it till later so you don't mess the wall up here? But here's my point. History holds that, you know what he did? Remember, he built more than one city. He built Babylon. He built Nineveh. He built Sodom, and by extension, Gomorrah and others that we see in that passage in Genesis. And all of those cities are evil, right? So they were built on the premise of him spreading his methodology, his MO, of being king and religious leader, or the one under God, supposedly. You see what I'm saying? He developed a religious system. He developed an economic system. And he also developed the governmental system, which he became king of. Do you see what I'm saying? It's all-encompassing. This is the system we're in now, which God, in Revelation, when Mystery Babylon is destroyed, this is what this is all going to be destroyed. And we're going to talk about how he moves into the, the system, which is, member the four Gentile world powers in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, if you're familiar with that. That is where Daniel is laying out to Nebuchadnezzar his dream, but for us to show us that under Satan's tenure, there are going to be four worldwide ruling Gentile powers because Satan is the king of the Gentiles, the Goyim. And that is the opposite of God's kingdom, and it's the fusion of opposites. So 
Nimrod started this all. So I want to make this very clear. Now, Nimrod was the man of Satan. He devised a way of hunting using leopards. He actually was able to, quote unquote, tame leopards and train them. And I'm going to tell you how there's a basis to know that this is true. Again, you, you, if you don't believe me, you should do the research. I've done the research in history, and this is secular history, folks. This is not folklore or anything else. This is secular history that, through writings and through things of how it worked out, um, he developed the, the methodology to hunt with leopards, which made him a very efficient hunter, and he taught others to do that. And that's how you build a city. You supply the needs, the physical needs of people, and they will come and come around you. When God told them to do what? disperse and populate the earth from the days of Genesis when he's told be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth right or replenish replenish which is maybe you could think of another story if something has to be replenished means there was something there before but that's another story which may okay so we're not going to go there but here's the point <laughs> don't get me started all right if you ever have ever seen in your high school days or your history classes, you may have seen kings of ancient or, or older cultures, and part of their kingly garb would be a leopard-trimmed vestige or a leopard-skin coat. You ever notice that? Because it was passed down as part of all of this and these Gentile powers, you know, there's a long memory. And so it seems very strongly that this power of the leopard, which was a great hunter. God designed the leopard to be a, a very efficient hunting machine. If you can tame that power, you can provide food for a lot of people. More efficient than sending men out to go hunting all day. Right? Send the leopards out. Their kill ratio is a lot higher. It's sort of like saying, instead of clubs, we're going to give you guns. Now go hunt. I'm trying to show you here, he built a very pervasive and detailed system which he had help in building, and it wasn't God. Remember, he was in defiance of the Lord. But this is a huge thing, folks. I want to make you see how big this became. So now, let's move on, all right? He had a wife named Semiramis, or there's other ways of pronouncing it. You've probably heard, but it's semi, I call it Semiramis, but it's spelled that way. Okay. They also had one son, and his name was, anybody know it? Begins with a T, ends with a Z. Tumuz. Remember that name. Remember those names, Semiramis, but remember the name Tammuz. Now, remember, they built a tower to reach heaven. What does that tell you? That they want to start or be the head of, of a religion, right? And remember what we are told in Genesis that they said, let us build a tower so that we can preserve or, or make our, our name, not God's name. You see the thrust behind this? They're going to make a name for themselves. That's the system that pervades to this day. The occult. They're making a name for themselves. They're not worshiping God. So, they built this tower to reach the heaven, but in the city, that name was Babel, or Babel, Babylon. You know what Babel really translates into? If you, if you look at the ancient translations of it that I found, the gateway to the gods that's what the tower was all about, folks. And by the way, history does also hold that Alexander the Great, before he died, he actually found and started digging up the remnants of that tower. And if you know the history of Alexander the Great, he was absolutely part and parcel of this whole system. And Daniel talks about Alexander the Great in his prophecies. 
Anyway, he has a wife and a son. He now builds himself a kingdom, and now he's going to build himself a religion. And the religion involves he as the king and also the supposedly the, the one under the gods of this religion. Now, you've known, you've heard about Pharaoh and, and others who were the heads of their specific, the physical heads or the human heads of their religion. This guy was going to be doing the same thing, but he created it under Satan. And he also got his wife involved in it, and she became the queen of heaven. Remember that term. And they have a son. And the way the religion goes is that the son gets mauled by a wild boar. Now, there are different variations of the story. So I'm just going to give you one that I've found that's most popular. But they all, all work out like this. That the son gets killed. But there's also a version of it that says that Nimrod himself gets killed. And so you have to merge the two together because it's very important to remember that in the versions where he gets killed, he becomes a, born again as a baby, and he's in his own wife's arms as the son. You see the story of death and resurrection here? So whether it's him or his son, I want you to realize that there is a, the, the Semiramis is the one who is the, the catalyst in all of this. And she is the one who is holding the newborn resurrected son of the religion, which is a miracle for those people who believed it. You see where I'm going with this, folks? The mother and son cult. So let's, that's the basis of Mystery Babylon. Also, Semiramis can be traced throughout history to the goddesses of Greek and Roman mythology and the goddesses that the Freemasons, who want, by the way, the district of, in Washington, D.C., of Columbia, has nothing to do with Jesus Christ, has nothing to do with the prophets or anything else. And on top of the Capitol building is a statue of Columbia, a goddess. That's how Christian our nation is, folks. Okay, so you've got to look at the government. You don't care. I don't see yeah, sure, plenty of Christian people. It's what came here over with the Mayflower and after the Mayflower that took this place over, and we're seeing the vestiges of it today, right? The whole Babylonian system with the goddesses. Have you ever been in the Capitol Rotunda in Washington? I have. Before I was a Christian. I didn't know what I was looking at, but I know now. There's the apotheosis of George Washington depicted in a mural in the Capitol Rotunda. Now, George Washington was a Freemason. Some people say he converted to Christianity. I really don't know. I really don't know, and I don't believe that he necessarily did. I don't know. But all I know is he definitely was a Freemason because he used to wear the Freemason apron. And he was one of the helpful architects who designed Washington, D.C. I'm not going to get into all the occult, but it's all designed on the occult. The story goes that when he went to heaven and he died, he was brought into the arms of these gods. And the way the government decided it had to happen was that he was brought up into heaven. So the mural, which was commissioned to be painted under, in the Capitol Dome, shows the apotheosis or the bringing up of Washington into the arms of these gods in a cloud. You can look all around the rotunda and they have all representations of all these gods and goddesses and all that. There's no Jesus Christ there. There's no apostles there. There's no Paul there. There's no Peter there. There's nothing there of the Old Testament prophets. It's all about the uh, cult. Which system do you think this government's based on? From the days when we were founded. Did you, and I told you about the Statue of Liberty. That was a gift from the French Freemasons to the American Freemasons. And if you look at the base of the statue, you can Google it and look at a picture and you'll see the Freemason symbol with the compass and the square with the G in it at the base of the Statue of Liberty. What's that got to do with 
freedom, folks, because we are going to be destroyed to be the resurrected Atlantis. They are waiting for Isis to come back, another goddess of mythology. And this is what they believe. And you know what? They put some Christians to shame because they believe and want this to happen more than we, some of us want us to see Christ come back. You see what I'm saying? So this is the basis of it. This system, as it started, spread throughout the world. Semiramis becomes the queen of heaven, and now you know who she is, right? She's now, for the last many centuries, the co-redemptrix of some major religions. So let's look at this. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 7 and verse 12. Even Israel, who God told many times, don't get involved with what these pagan people do. Okay, you think he's serious about it? Do you think he means that for us too, folks? Don't get involved with people who try to merge us with the pagan religions. Do we take it seriously? I don't think so. Maybe not in this class, maybe in a lot of Christians, but most Christians do not. Just like Israel did not. And let's, let's see why people, whether they're Christian or whether they're, they're Israelites, why do they rather follow the occult? Let's see. Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 12 through 19. Go now to the place in Shiloh. Remember where Shiloh was? It was where the tabernacle was, where the portable temple first was before it got taken and moved. Shiloh. Go now to the, this is God telling Jeremiah to do this. Go now to the place in Shiloh where I first, first, remember the temporary tabernacle? First made a dwelling place for my name. And see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. While you were doing all these things, declares the Lord, I spoke to you again and again. God kept warning and warning and warning and warning. But you did not listen. I called you, but you did not answer. That shows us that it's a willful rejection of God, right? Okay. Therefore, what I did to Shiloh, I will now do with the Philistines. I will now do to the house that bears my name. The temple you trust in, the place I gave you to you to your fathers. I will thrust you from my presence. You see how serious this is, folks? just as I did all your brothers, the people of Ephraim. Verse 16. So do not pray for this people. Do not offer any plea or petition for them. Do not plead with me on their behalf, for I will not listen. This is how angry God is. He's not even taking prayers for these people. That's how angry idolatry makes God. Now listen to this. Verse 17. Do you not see what they are doing in the towns of Judea and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, the fathers light the fire. So you see, the whole, it's a whole family affair. This whole worship thing, right? Everybody's doing it. The children gather the wood, the fathers light the fire, and the women knead the dough and make the cakes of bread for the queen of heaven. What does the Vatican and people who believe their stuff call, and who do they pray to? This Virgin Mary. You know, I knew a guy, and I have to tell this to this class a while ago, who I worked with many years ago now. And he was a Greek Orthodox. It doesn't matter to me. You can call yourself anything you want. But he had a mouth on him like it would sink a ship. And so I told him, if you're a Christian, because he said he's a Christian, you better watch your mouth. I told him. Okay? But we were together a lot. I was a pre-sales guy, and he was my sales rep. So we were together a lot. So he didn't like me very much, but he still was told, you're a Christian. You tell me you're a Christian. Okay, we'll act like one. Anyway. But we were kind of friends. And actually, he told me later on, he says, I've never met a guy like you, and I consider you my friend. 
Wow. <laughs> but anyway. Well, he, I, I, yeah, I've never heard from him again, but he knew I cared enough about him to set him on the right path. Okay? You call yourself something. You want to call yourself a pagan, then do whatever you want. You call yourself a Christian, and you're telling you're my brother or sister? Well, I'm going to take you to task because I want you to take me to task. We're here to hold each other accountable. Anyway, so we're driving. We're on a business trip going to Atlanta. We actually had to go to two cities. We flew into one city, did our job, and we, from, oh, it was uh, Atlanta, and we had to go to Minneapolis. So we went to Atlanta, and we're driving in a rental car. We're only there for one night. We drive downtown. We're talking. And I started asking him some questions about this worship, Mary worship stuff. I just wanted to get him going because I had nothing better to do. I'm driving. We're in the car together. <laughs> he knows me. I'll ask you questions. You want, you want, I'll ask you. You see, I told you I'm used to getting myself in trouble. Anyway, the long and short of it is, is that we're talking about it, and he says, oh, we don't worship Mary, we don't worship Mary. So, okay, fine, right? So I go, through, I go through this history here with him, just a little bit, just to get him thinking. And so we go to the hotel. He checks into his room. I check into my room. We're going to meet for dinner. So we come downstairs to meet in the lobby. I totally forgot about this conversation. I really did. I didn't even think about it. All of a sudden, he says to me, when we meet downstairs, he goes to me, you know, I just want to let you know, I called my wife, and she said we don't worship Mary. <laughs> he did. He did. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. Okay, all right, you made your point. Okay, all right. So you, okay, good. But here's my point. Yeah. There's, yeah. That's exactly, where, yeah, and there's a cross on it too to make it more Christian. Yeah. All of these pagan, well, the Yule log, the Yule log at Christmas, you know what that is? Yule is, and I forgot what language, it must be Aramaic or whatever, not Aramaic, um, is it Aramaic? I forgot, I can't remember, but the Yule Log is actually a pagan ritual that is the death of Tammuz or Nimrod, but they mostly likely Tammuz in, in that version story. And they burn him in effigy in the fire. He's the baby, right? So he dies, he gets burned in the fire, but it's sort of like the phoenix because the resurrection of the Tammuz, the burnt log, is the tree with the decorations on it. New life. You burn a log, you plant a tree. You get another log. You see the cycle here? Death, burial, resurrection. So our Christmas rituals are steeped in this stuff. I'm just letting you know, folks, you can do whatever you want with it. <laughs> yes, we actually did because it's still up, too. So I'm not saying it's sin. What I'm saying is be under advisement. It's sort of like this. Remember when Paul said, hold on, meat offered unto idols? Right? Remember? It used to be that you didn't want to eat that stuff because it was like you're saying that these idols are true. Well, there is no God but God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So he said, if you want to eat meat offered to idols, you can because actually that was the best meat. The best cuts of meat were the ones that were brought to the idols' temples and, and, and offered to them. He says, if you want to eat it, go ahead. But he said, for conscience sake, if someone asks you, is that meat that was offered to the idols, you shouldn't eat it for their conscience. Okay? So among Christians, if I or you put up a Christmas tree, okay. But if I had someone who wanted to know the history of it, I'd tell them. But I'd also say it's a tradition. But I want you to know where it comes from, okay. So is it a point of contention? Well, I don't particularly want the tree. As a matter of fact, Christmas doesn't really float my boat. I just, I just do it because we do it, okay. And it's not really all that much. I don't care if we get a tree or not. I don't put lights up. I don't do any of that stuff. But I'm letting you know. Yeah, she's, she's pouting. That's good. So I can honestly say that the tree was not my idea anyway, all right? I didn't want to say that, but they like it. Okay. I just want you to know where it's coming from, folks.
I don't burn Yule logs either, but I do have a fire on Christmas with wood. So we only got, got a few minutes here. Okay. Yes, and, and we don't do hot cross buns yet. All right. So he says, so let's, we've got to move on a little bit because I want to get through this. We've got a few minutes left. I really want to get through this. Okay, so they knead dough and make cakes of bread for the queen of heaven. Now listen to this. They pour out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. But am I the one they are provoking, declares the Lord? Are they not rather harming themselves to their own shame? Shame. Now, let's talk about Tammuz and Israel's problem with Tammuz. There's, a, by the way, a month on their calendar named Tammuz. Let's go to Ezekiel chapter 8 and verse 9. Ezekiel chapter 8 and verse 9, okay? Here's God yet again not being too pleased with his people, Israel, his elect. And he said to me, Ezekiel chapter 8 and verse 9, And he said to me, Go in and see the wicked and detestable things that they are doing here. So I, Ezekiel, went in and looked. And I saw portrayed all over the walls of the temple all kinds of crawling things and detestable animals and all the idols of the house of Israel. In front of them stood 70 elders, 70 elders, leaders, who also did this stuff. 70 elders of Israel and Jezaniah, son of Japhan, was standing among them. The leaders each had a censer in his hand. What do they do in the Catholic Church? How do they bless you? Each had a censer in his hand and a fragrant cloud of incense was rising. Do you know what that's a bastardization of? Our prayers being what? To the nostrils of God. The only, that's right, sweet fragrance, the only incense that we should be offering to God are our prayers. But the other gods, they like sacrifice too. And they like incense too. The physical version of the spiritual. You see the opposites merging? All right. Verse 12 in Ezekiel chapter 8. He said to me, son of man, he's talking to Ezekiel, son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the darkness? They're in hiding because they know it's wrong. Each at the shrine of his own idol. They say the Lord ha, does not see us. That means they don't even believe God is omnipotent or omnipresent. The Lord has forsaken the land. So what have we got to lose? Basically is what they're saying. Again, he said, you will see them doing things that are even more detestable than what he just told them. Okay, so what could be more detestable? Let's move on. Verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 14. Then he brought me to the entrance to the north gate of the house of the Lord. Now that is the north gate of the temple, right? And I saw women, not just one, women sitting in there mourning for who? They're weeping for the death of Tumuz because the story goes, remember, he got killed. Okay? Then they're weeping for him. This is a ritual, folks. It's like these women who in these foreign countries, and they're supposedly Christian, they're more Catholic than anything else, and they weep, and they, they self-flagellate, and they're all weeping at Jesus being crucified. This is what they do. This is what they do. Professional mourners, thank you, that's the name. Verse 15, he said to me, do you see this, son of man? You will see things that are even more detestable than this. Then he brought me into the inner court of the house of the Lord, and there at the entrance to the temple, between the portico and the altar, were about 25 men with their backs toward the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east. You remember all of the worship to the east? Remember that, especially in the 70s, after the Jesus freaks, there was the, the Eastern mysticism. Now we're moving in, into the Muslim 
uh, worship now. Everybody's merging now. Everybody's merging to Muslim. In the 70s, the Christians were merging with the Eastern mysticism. And now we have yoga, we have chakras, we have, this, we have all of this stuff that gets mixed in. So now we still have Eastern religion, but we're also merging it with Islam. And this is Christianity, and these are in books that you see. Empty your mind. Let Jesus speak to you. No, that's what they do. The pagans empty their mind to let the gods come in and speak to them. The Bible nowhere says to clear your mind and ask Christ to speak to you. The Bible says the word of God is what speaks to you, which means you must read it. You do not empty your mind. You fill it. That's right. That's right. And you can't test the spirit when you open your mind. Just come on in, Lord. Oh, you hear something? Must be Jesus. Must be Jesus. Really? That's Eastern mysticism. Oh, they're doing it in churches. That's right. That's right. Let's move on now. Let's move on now. They bow toward the east. Let's talk about this thing about Abraham. we got about 10 minutes. We'll say 10 minutes. Okay? Scripture moves on from the Tower of Babel. All of that was to say this. We now see that this Babylonian mystery religion is well established. Okay? We see it because we move forward in time to the Ezekiel and Jeremiah's time. Okay? So let's move backward now to the genesis of this whole thing right after it with Abram. Abraham is called by God, and God actually deals with him in seven separate incidences, distinct incidences, to call him out of the land of the Ur of the Chaldees. By the way, was Abraham a Jew? No, there was no Jew there. Did he have the law? No. They didn't get the law until they left Egypt. They went to Mount Sinai. So even all those people weren't under the law, and God still saved them and said, under a covenant, you will agree to do these things, and that's the beginning of any law, isn't it? It's a contract. So the long and short of it... Abraham was not a, a poor man. He was a wealthy man, and he had a, a lot of people. He also made a mistake when God said to him, you will not take anybody with you. You're going to go by yourself. And I told you that the tribe that he was with, his father's tribe, they worshipped the moon god, which is Allah. Okay, so here's a Muslim, if you want to call him that, coming out, being called by God, not to a religion, but to a relationship, which he had to agree to. And we know in, and you know in Hebrews that it was by faith that the promise came to Abraham. Not by anything else, not by works. Okay. So here we go. Go to Genesis chapter 14, verse 1. And here, here's where we're going to talk about these four kings. At one point after this, now he had a bunch of men, and they were, they were, they were well-seasoned. Okay, They were good warriors. There were 318 of them. And this is what happens. Genesis 14, chapter 1. At this time, now I want you to remember these names if you can, just but think there are four kings here. Amraphel, king of Shinar, Shinar, Ariok, king of Elisar, Ketalolomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of the Goyim, king of nations. They went to war against uh, Bera, king of Sodom, and these other kings and so forth, and I'm not going to get into that. So their battles drew four northern Gentile kings southward into the region of Sodom. And if you look on this map here, Here's Sodom, right at the bottom of the Dead Sea. I don't know if it's hard to see, but here's this area. This is where these battles took place. Let's look at these kings. Amraphel of Shinar. Remember I told you, we just mentioned that name? History holds that he was actually Nimrod. And I, the, the book of Jasher shows that, and other history shows that, that he was Nimrod, okay? And they call Am Amraphel. Yeah. That's right. It was about, it was the area. As a matter of fact, it's right here. I have the land of Shinar on this chart here, and it encompasses this area. Here's Iraq, and Babylon is right in the middle of it. That's where this king ruled, the land of Shinar. All right? Okay. 
Then there was Arioch of Elisar, and these people actually migrated to be the rulers of the people that migrated to Greece, which is off that way. So if you look at that area, um, Asia Minor, the Hittite area, let's see. Well, I, don't, I didn't put it here, but here's Greece. I put it here. So this is where these people migrated to Greece, which is to the left of the Mediterranean. That's where Greece is and the Greek Isles and all that stuff. Um, and there's, I have information here in my notes about how I, came, how I found this stuff, but I'm not going to get into it now. But here's the interesting part. This king of Elas, right, Elas, here's an excerpt from Wikipedia. The name of Greece differs in comparison with the names used for the country in other languages and cultures, just like the names of the Greeks. Although the Greeks call their country, they still do this, Hellas, which is another form of Eleda, which is like Elas, this king, Elas, Hellas. You see where I'm going with this? What happened to the world when Alexander the Great and then the, the Seleucid and all the others came and, and, and conquered the world just before the Roman Empire? They Hellenized. Hele, ele, you see what I'm saying here? Ela is a, is a root word for Hellenized or Hellenistic or Hellenization, and the Greeks still talk about the Hellenizing or them being descendants of this Elas or Elad, or the way they say it is Hellenistic. You see what I'm saying here? So the history shows it out. And they actually, the Hellenistic period comes from the time of Alexander the Great in 323 BC up until Rome conquers the Greeks and becomes the Roman Empire. Colonel Lomer of Elam. Here's Elam, uh, right down here, right here. Elam runs from Iran down by the, uh, the Persian Gulf. Here's the Strait of Hormuz right here you've heard a lot about, right here. Okay. Here's the Persian Gulf, here's Iran, and Elam runs up all the way to the Caspian Sea. By the way, did you know the history holds that Daniel, after his time of prominence and, and everything happened, he migrated up to just below in a town called Ecbatana, which is still there, right below the Caspian Sea. And it's there where he taught the pagans about God, about the coming Messiah. And from this area is where the Magi came, because they knew about the sign for Messiah, which the Jews themselves didn't know, because Daniel kept teaching. And then they taught, and they taught, and they taught. And that's what history holds, folks. And then they went east. Well, actually, well, west. And it took him two years to get from here to there to see the Christ child. And Herod believed it because Herod knew that they knew that they were talking about. Okay. All right. So if you, uh, I'm going to just show you what I'm talking about here. Finally, Tidal is the king of the Goyim, which is the nations, just the Hebrew word for nations. So that's the rest of the area around here, the king of Elam and all that stuff. Here's the point. If you trace these history, this history down here, here is the empires, the statue of the four governmental structures. Isn't that interesting? Babylon, which is one of the kings. Medo-Persia, which is the other king. The Greek, which is Elas. Iron, which is the Roman Empire. And then the end times, which is iron clay. I'm going to get to that next week. But these four kings, I'm, I'm had to be a little more brief about it. I have more information here. But I'm trying to show you that the genesis of the four major Gentile world ruling powers throughout history until Jesus Christ comes back the second time. There's a stone in the dream cut out of a mountain without hands. And a stone in scripture is always indicative of judgment. If you see have a rock, it's a solid salvation type, but a stone is typically means judgment in scripture. 
and a stone is cut out without human hands and it smites the image on the feet, destroying the whole image and it blows away as chaff. Not one bit of this image is left. Anybody remember that from Daniel? And then what happens to that stone? What happens to it? It turns into a mountain that covers the whole world. And that is the prophecy in Revelation that talks about when Jesus comes back and he obliterates the structure of these four distinct empires with distinct personalities. And you can see the distinct personalities in Daniel and in Revelation when you look at the symbology of how these progress. If you ever know the book of Daniel and Revelation, you'll see how they progress. They have their distinct personalities and they wind up with these ten toes of iron and clay. I'm going to talk about that next week because it's going to be talking about the darker side of prophecy, which is the movement and the destruction or changing of human DNA to merge with something else. Iron and clay. We're made of clay. And scripture holds that angel angelic DNA is equivalent to iron. It's stronger. It's stronger. But it's DNA because there's a DNA code for life. Would you agree that Jesus Christ had human DNA in him? But it wasn't all human DNA, was it? It was a genetic code that was God-based that merged with the human DNA to create a single being that was never lived before and never lived again. What makes you think that God did not allow the fallen angels to do the same kind of DNA splicing technology? We can do that today, right? We can splice animal DNA with human DNA and they have no business being mixed. Why can't angelic DNA be merged with human DNA when God himself did it? This is what this prophecy talks about. I'm going to show you this next week as a wrap-up to this prophecy about the Gentile ruling powers and the final kingdom, which will be, as Jesus said, just as in the days of Noah. And why was there a flood? Why? Is it just because of sin? Yeah, but not just because people sin. Because it says about Noah what? Why was Noah saved? That's right, because he was perfect in his generations. Either that means he was sinless and everybody behind him that was sinless, which is not true. Or if he was perfect in this generation, it means his DNA was purely human and Messiah had to be purely human. And if you're Satan, here's a chess game for you, folks. You know that Messiah is coming and you know he's going to be human. You're going to destroy to destroy human DNA so that he can't be human. And that's how Goliath, King Og of Bashan, all of these creatures come, which we call the Nephilim, the giants, the men of renown, and they say that Nimrod was a giborim. He was becoming one of those. Now, that's debatable, but Nimrod had a special link with Satan, and that's why he became so powerful. That's the end of the lesson for today. I hope that was a good history lesson for you.